Romans chapter 7 is our passage for the day, and we're, Lord willing, going to cover six verses, first couple of paragraphs there. So if you've got your Bible, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there is uh, probably a pew Bible in front of you. You can grab that and take that. That can be yours, and um, we would love for you to have that. That'll be our gift to you. Romans chapter 7, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. We bow down before you. You are our God. There is none like you. You alone are eternal, all wise, all knowing, just and holy, upright and merciful. And so we worship you. We give you honor. And Father, we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. And we will read about that today. We will ponder some of the truth of what has been accomplished for us in Christ, particularly his death and his resurrection, and what that means for us. We praise you. We praise you that we get to have life where we should have death. We get to have hope where there should be none because of Christ. So, Father, as we turn to your word now and we move to parts that become difficult to understand in Paul's reasoning and exactly what he's trying to say and what the significance is for us, we pray, Father, that you would be at work in us by your Spirit. Speak to us from your word. Pray that you would change us, change our minds, and change our hearts from your word. So this time is yours. We are your people. This is your word. We pray that you would work by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are moving into chapter 7, which 
Uh, continues on, of course, the argument of what has come before, but these first couple of paragraphs ask a question that we need to keep in mind, and we need to see how he answers it. And that question is, how can sinful man give God the service that is due to him? How can sinful man give God the service that is due to him? That question is very important because if you remember page one of your Bible, all the way back in Genesis chapter one, we read these words where God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So he created us for service. A large part of what it means to be created in the image of God has to do with how we function. It's not just the way we look, as if God looks like us, nor is it primarily about our makeup, as if God is reflecting his makeup in us. Those things, that that may be included But what he means when he talks about us as his image has to do with our function in creation. This isn't a Bible study on Genesis chapter 1, but what has happened is God has laid the foundation for all of creation, and then having done so, he takes his image and puts his image, us, into that creation, and how are we to function? Well, we are to function like God does in it. Let them have dominion. We are to function as God's representatives on the earth, which has to do with our behavior. It has to do with our lives. It has to do with the things that we do, the things that we allow, the things that we forbid. Well, then, of course, on page two or three of your Bible, sin entered the picture, and we've fallen, and we are now fallen creatures, and we are not functioning as we ought to, and we are now marred by sin, and and we... We uh, are now spiritually dead and, and we're, we're affected in all kinds of ways by sin. And so now we are fallen creatures. We were created in his image to function as his image, as his representatives on this earth in ruling over creation. And we've sinned. So then the question for us again is how can sinful man give God the service due to him? Well, that's... That's a question Paul has been discussing for these middle chapters of Romans. He's been talking about not simply how we can be redeemed, not simply how we can be rescued from an eternity of judgment and placed into an eternity of blessing, but he's been talking about how we as sinful man can render to God the service that is due him. And in his argument on that topic back in chapter 6 and verse 14, he made a very bold statement. He said, you are not under law, Christian, but under grace. Well, that's a, that's a bold statement. And, of course, that raises some questions. That raises the question, first of all, in the very next verse, chapter 6 and verse 15, so should you just sin? If you're not under law but under grace, should you just sin? Well, the answer is no. Since you were set free from law and you were placed under grace, 
You were given a new heart desire to obey your new master who is God. So no, you don't just continue in sin because you've been made new from the inside. But there's a second question that arises here in chapter 7. Why is it grace and not law that is necessary for us to have eternal life? Why is it grace and not law that is necessary for us to render to God the service that is due Him? Why is that? Well, that's the question he's going to be addressing, and he does so in our chapter today by, first of all, talking about a principle of law in verses 1, 2, and 3. And the first principle of that law is that law is binding throughout life. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Law is binding throughout life. The person who's under the Mosaic law is bound to obey the Mosaic law for his whole life. He doesn't get to skip out because he went to the next country or because he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. If he's under the law, he's under the law for his whole life. And so he uses uh, an illustration to make his point. And so he looks briefly at God's law concerning marriage. And so he says in verse 2, A married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. That may sound like a, a strong statement. I mean, we live in a culture where uh, divorce and remarriage is a pretty common thing. It's pretty easy to obtain those things legally. And, and, uh, and our culture certainly pushes those sorts of things. But, but what he's saying is regarding the Mosaic law, a married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he is alive. The point is that in the biblical view of what marriage is, marriage is for life. Marriage is for life. We had a very good discussion at the dinner table last night in our family. We were defining what marriage is uh, in, in, from biblical terms and in contrast to the way our culture might do so. And part of that definition is that the biblical conception is that marriage lasts for life. With very few exceptions, the marriage is valid and binding as long as both parties are alive. But the law doesn't continue to apply after death. That probably makes sense to everyone. Though a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Makes sense. To whom is she married if he has died? Right? And that's why we say in our wedding vows, till death do us part. Right? We're making the same commitment. We're saying the same thing. And so... In this conception, biblically speaking, the marriage officially ends when one of the parties is no longer alive. And so you have two people involved in the formation of a, of a covenant, and one of those people has passed away, and therefore you no longer have both members of that covenant. And so the covenant is ended. It's nullified. And... There will be certain penalties assessed if this law is broken. Look at the beginning of verse 3. She will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband's alive, meaning the law has certain penalties. There are certain consequences to breaking the law. And in this example that Paul gives, the example of marriage, if she is to live with another man while her husband is still alive, she's considered an adulteress. And there are certain consequences that come from that 
based upon the law. The law and its penalties are in force until marriage has been ended by death. When death does happen, though, the living party is freed to be joined to another. So he continues in verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. So you have freedom by death. Paul's point is that here you have a covenant between two people before God. And when one of those people has passed away, that covenant no longer is in effect. Because of death, that law no longer holds. It took death of the death of one of the two people covenant together to render that covenant null before the law. So that's his first paragraph. That's what the, the principle that he gives. Law is binding as long as you're alive. And then he gives the example of marriage. But it's not purely an example. We're going to see that he uses the, uh, the picture even of that marriage to explain what he's talking about. He draws an inference from this illustration. He says, we have been freed from law to be joined to Christ. And so we see verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may bear fruit for God. First, Paul mentions us as having died to the law, having died to law. And so he's following on this illustration that he used, but you can see it's a little bit more of an illustration. He's talking about this marriage situation where a husband and a wife have covenanted together before God. They've been joined together and the death of one of the parties frees the other party to pursue marriage. And he says, likewise, you, in your situation, you have been set free by death. But in this case, it wasn't the death of the husband. It was your own death, in a sense, because it was Christ having died in your place. And so his death breaks that covenant relationship, breaks that bondage that you had to the law before. You used to be married to the law, as it were, but now, because you have died through the body of Christ, you have been set free. You are no longer bound. You are no longer married. You are no longer tied up with the law like you were before. So there's a freedom that's been bought by a death. Which, of course, brings us back to all that was discussed in chapter 5 and all that was discussed in chapter 6 of the realities that are ours because of what Christ has done. Because of his own life, the way he lived it, because of his own death, because of his own resurrection, there are certain consequences to us who have faith in Christ. His life means something. His life of obedience, his life of righteousness means obedience and righteousness is applied to our account before God. His death under the penalty of sin means that for those of us who are in Christ, the penalty for our sin has been paid in him. And his resurrection from the dead means that we who are in Christ have new life. We are raised from the dead. We no longer are bound to sin the way we were. And here he discusses the fact that we have died to law. But he's not done there because he points to uh, what is the purpose, what is the point of our death. It's so that we may belong to another. He gives the purpose. 
We've not just died and been set free and now we're a free agent. Through the body of Christ, through the death of Christ, we have died and been set free so that we may belong to another. To him who was raised. There's a purpose. He's not just springing us. He's not just letting us loose on society or something. He has set us free for the purpose of us being joined to another. Being joined to Christ. And just like the wife is freed from her marriage to her husband by his death, that then frees her up to remarry another, so then we are freed from our marriage to the law by death, so that we are freed to be married to another, to be bound to, to be tied to, to be committed to another who is Christ. And so we've been set free. And so that's the, that, that's the point, that's the purpose. But there's a grand purpose, there's something even beyond that. And the, the grand purpose, the one even beyond that, is godly fruit. Godly fruit. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You see the purpose, the goal, in order that? Anytime in your Bible you see in order that, it should catch your attention because what that means is the words to follow are likely the point of the passage. In order that is important. The goal that God is aiming for, the purpose He is working towards, the end He has in mind. And here it is, godly fruit. You see, God's goal in the gospel is not merely to redeem people from judgment. Not merely to display His power and His mercy in doing those things. Though He certainly desires those things and He certainly redeems people from judgment and places them in a position of blessing before God. But that's not the end goal. He has something larger than that in mind. He does that. He redeems us for a purpose. And that purpose is that we would bear godly fruit. It's right there in the text in verse 4. In order that we may bear fruit for God. We started off our discussion today back in page 1 of your Bible. And asking the question, okay, if we were created and placed upon this earth to be his image bearers, to function as his vice regents in this earth, to rule over creation in his place, representing him, if that's the case, if that's how we were created, what now that sin has entered the picture? How can we do that now that we are fallen? Now that we are sinful, how can we represent God the way we ought to? How can we render to him the service that is due him? And so he says here that he's brought it full circle. The purpose for this salvation, the purpose of us having been set free from our bondage to, the, to sin and to the law and been remarried to Christ, been committed to, been given to another, to Christ himself, the purpose of doing so is that we would bear godly fruit. He has restored us in a sense to the way things were in page one. He wants us to bear godly fruit. I say he's restored us in a sense because in a lot of senses, things are a lot better than they were then. Yeah, Adam and Eve walked with God and we can walk with God. 
And they had right relationship with him, and we can have right relationship with God in Christ. We have the Spirit of God living within us. We are a new creation in Christ. We have blessing that is even beyond what Adam and Eve had. He has not just redeemed it, as in returned it to the way it was. He's improved it. So that our relationship with God, our connection with Him, our being joined with Him is in a much closer and tighter way than ever Adam and Eve had. And so that's why I say, in a sense, He has returned us to the way things were. But I want to draw attention to His end, His purpose, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Which raises the question, how is fruit produced? How is He going to Produce fruit in us. And so we, we see in verses 5 and 6, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, the law produces dead fruit. The law produces dead fruit. What is it about law that winds up producing sin in our lives? Have you thought about that? What is it about law that ends up producing disobedience in those who have been called to obey it? What is it about law that makes it produce dead fruit? Well, I have a couple of couple of things I want to say about that. First, while we were still in the flesh, the law came and aroused our sinful passions. Do you see how it how active a role law has. Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. The law actually stirs up our sinful desires. Actually brings them to the forefront. Makes them obvious to us. Makes them more desirable to us. Even than before the law was given. How can that be? How can that be? Well, I have a couple of ideas about that. But if you, if you tell a child not to do something, you have ensured that they will now be, in, be tempted to do that thing. You could, you could choose any child. I won't even pick on my own family this time. You could choose any child who might be seven and younger, and you tell them, don't touch pew number three because that's Mrs. Travis's pew. Don't touch pew number three. Well, that child may never have thought about touching pew number three in their life, ever. But now they've been forbidden. I wonder if there's something special about pew number three. I mean, Mrs. Travis sits there, so it's got to be great. So maybe you'll see them moving that direction, right? That's a silly example. That's as, that's as silly as it could be, right? But it's true. There's something about... Our sinful nature. We really don't like being told no. I don't like being told no. 
And so I kind of get a little twitchy sometimes when someone tells me no and and I, I begin to deal with new temptations that I never dealt with before, like touching pew number three. Right? Just because I was told no, because, because I'm a rebel deep within, because of my sinful flesh that is in rebellion against God and in rebellion against every standard set up against me. And so that's a part of it. But of course, the law isn't really concerned about such trivial things. It's not a moral issue or an ethical issue of whether this child touches pew number three. And Mrs. Travis is very nice. She won't even smack them if they do so. Right? And the law is not concerned about amoral issues. The law doesn't primarily tell us silly things like don't touch pew number three. The law is concerned about issues much closer to our heart. Just think your way through the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the Ten Commandments because they're tough. Because they address the issues that we really care about. Just think your way through the Ten Commandments. Starting with number one. Having another God before Him. Is that a temptation? For everyone. For everyone. That's at the heart of who who we are. That's at the heart of who we are as beings created in His image and now as fallen beings. That's at the heart of who we are. We will worship. We will worship something. And in rebellion, we will always worship something other than God. So that, that's not an amoral issue like touching a pew. That's right down to the heart of who we are. But you could keep going down the list of the Ten Commandments and they hit real close to home, don't they? How you treat your parents. What you do with your time. Are you going to honor the Lord with it? What about those later ones like murder? And then Jesus spells out for us, well, that really wasn't just about murder. That's about your attitude towards other people. The same thing with adultery. What you do with your eyes, what you do with your heart. That's what the law is concerned about. Is it, does that strike close to home? Oh, yeah. Bearing false witness? Oh, yeah. So the law doesn't just lay out things like don't touch pew number three. There may be some things that we don't really understand about the law. What's he really driving at and, and things like that. But for the most part, and for all of the moral law, there are issues that are close to home that address my selfishness, my own idolatry, my own flesh, my own sinful desires. And so when the law comes, which addresses those issues, which speaks right down to that heart level of the place you struggle, when the law comes in and speaks into that context, what's your response? Well, we thought the kid with pew number three was bad. Just let God tell us we can't do anything. Worship something other than him, perhaps. Just let God say that we have to be chaste and pure in our relationships. Let him say that we, we need to speak the truth and only the truth. Don't hedge the truth. And that stirs up our sinful passions. And we start thinking all the more of the ways that, you know, it would really benefit me if I could just bend the truth a little bit. I mean, it's tax season, right? 
Nervous laughter. <laughs> it's tax season, right? there, And so you're stirred up. The sinful passions within you are now whipped into a frenzy. And the things that, that perhaps were dormant, now are no longer dormant. That's what law does. That's what, that's what law does when it interacts with our flesh. And when sinful man is confronted by law, he responds in rebellion. Now, the rebellion may not be outward and gross, visible to all, but there will be rebellion. Even if outwardly everything looks good, inwardly it's not. That's the nature of our sinful desires in interaction with God's commands from the law. Look what he says in verse 5. While we were living in the flesh, meaning before we were believers, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The result of that whole equation was sinful, deadly, rotting fruit. Our sinful passions were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The law ended up producing in us dead fruit. There was fruit in our lives. It just wasn't good. It was in rebellion against God. It was in evil response to the righteous requirement of the law. There are lots of questions that are raised at this point, like, so does that mean that the law is bad? When Paul's going to say, no, the law is is an accurate and good representation of God's character and nature. The problem is our flesh and how we interact with it. The problem is our rebellion against it. Other questions are going to come up with, okay, so what about the law now that we are in Christ? What do we do with the law? That deals with our next point that we're going to get to. The law in us produced dead fruit because our rebellious nature, our flesh, rebelled against it, ran the other direction because it was told no. The wages of sin is death. But fortunately, he's not finished there. We are not under the law. We are under grace if we are in Christ. We are no longer held captive under the law. We died with Christ to that very law that used to produce death in us. Dead, rotting fruit. He says... While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. The Spirit produces godly fruit. Law produced dead fruit, and the Spirit produces Godly fruit. So we, we've been set free. And that's his, that's his point. Our initial question that we asked was, how can sinful man render to God the service that is due to God and that God requires of us? We started off in the garden rendering this service and then we fell into sin. How can we be restored to a place we, where we are giving the service to God that, that is due to Him? 
that we ought to as his creation, and not just as his creation, but as the crown of his creation, created in his image. How can we function that way? It's not by law. The law came and accurately represented who God is to us. And that didn't result in good things. That resulted in us rebelling further against who God is revealed to be. But we are not under law. Because of what Christ did, because of his death, his completion of the law, his obedience to the law, and then his death, and we by faith died with him, that means that our old husband has been put away. That covenant that we used to have when we were bound to law, we were bound to sin, has been broken. Because we've died. You see, the image doesn't work straight across from the example in verses 1, 2, and 3 and the way it's applied in verse 4. Because in the example of verses 1, 2, and 3, it's the husband that dies because there's got to be somebody left alive to get remarried in his illustration. So the husband dies, and thus the wife is free to remarry. But in the application of it, who died? We died. And thus we are free to remarry. So it's not a one-to-one correspondence across that illustration. But his point is that by death, by the death of Christ, that old covenant, as it were, those old bonds, those ties, that connection, that marriage has been broken. It's been dissolved because of death. And we are no longer tied to it. We're no longer bound to it. We've been set free. And so he says we no longer serve in the old way of the written code. The written code was given that people would serve God the way they were supposed to. The old code, the law, the Mosaic law was given to teach God's people how to give him the service that is due to him. And it didn't work. This is not a surprise to God. It was very intentional. God knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly that he was going to send his son who would keep those commandments, who would obey that law, would fulfill it entirely, and then in the end would die paying the penalty for those who have not kept that law, which is you and me. So it's not a surprise to him. But this is the way he designed it. He gave the old written code. And life under the old written code produced more and more sin, revealed more and more rebellion. If you don't believe me, just read the Old Testament. Instead, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. We have a new relationship with God. God has designed, He has placed, He has created within us a new way of producing the fruit that He desires. We read it last week, but it's on Paul's mind, so we're going to read it again. This is a statement of the new covenant from Ezekiel 36, and there are other statements that we could refer to it as well. But this is the promise that was being made. If you think of Ezekiel, when was Ezekiel writing? He was writing in the Old Testament, of course, because you found Ezekiel in the Old Testament. He's writing during the time of the Old Testament. The nation of Israel is going into exile for their disobedience. They've been kicked out of the land. They're going into exile. And what was the promise for obedience to the law? You'll get to stay in your land. Well, they had consistently and persistently disobeyed God's law because of the reasons that we've been talking about. And the result was they were being kicked out of the land. 
So at that time when it was being made painfully clear to the entire nation that the old way of the written code does not work, we read these words from God. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In other words, this is the new way of the spirit. The old way of the written code did not work. But the new way of the Spirit, where, where God has worked inside the heart of man, having set him free in his heart, at his core, having set him free from this marriage to sin, this marriage to the law, this commitment to those things, right down at his core, he has, because of the death of Christ, set him free from that bondage. And given him to Christ so that now we are bound to Christ. Now we are wedded to Christ. We are joined with him, the one who's been raised from the dead, so that we would go from a place of having a dead heart, a heart of stone, instead to be given a heart of flesh, a heart that's responsive to God, that's soft towards God. He says He will put His Spirit within us. His Spirit is no longer simply acting from out here. But His Spirit is working within us to cause us to walk in obedience. Cause you to walk in My statutes, He says, because I put My Spirit within you. So what was outward and external? The law. God has now worked to create internally and within us. To create an obedience that comes from the heart. We talked about that last week. This is the new covenant. This is the realization of the new covenant. God is at work within us, not merely to rescue us from hell and deliver us to heaven. But because he's also restoring us to a place where we are rendering to him the service that is due to him as our creator. The service that we were given all the way back in page one. And he's working within us right now to create that within us. That's the new covenant. And Christian, we are new covenant believers. We are under this new covenant. This is the way God works. He is working in our hearts. The argument to this point, and he's by no means done in the book of Romans, has to do with God working in our hearts at the very core of who we are so that we operate from a new place as Christians because of what God has done for us, because He has transferred us out of that old domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son, because He has put His Spirit within us, because He has given us a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, we now obey from the heart. His Spirit, who was once outside of us, is now within us, placed within us to cause us to walk in His statutes. Why do we walk in His statutes? Because we want to. Because we are new. We want to walk in obedience to Him. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The question still remains, what of the law? And we're going to address what of the law. How does the law relate to us? We've not quite gotten there yet. But I'll just tell you anyway. How do we relate to the law? We still obey the law. We still keep the law. And I'm referring to the moral code. I'm not referring to sacrifices and those sorts of things. I'm not referring to the uh, feasts and annual things like that that had to do with the nation of Israel. I'm talking about the moral code, what he wants us to do, what he, what, what he gave us to do, his statutes that he has commanded us. We still obey the same things, only it's from an entirely different place. It's not from the outside in. It's not the old written code that is dead and produces dead fruit. But instead, it's the law given to people who are alive to God in Christ. We want to obey him and we say, how can I obey you? And he says, well, here, here's how you can obey me. Have no other gods before me. Don't make a God in, 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 uh, in, in your own image. Obey me. And so we still obey the law. But it's as those who have already been redeemed and who have had a new heart placed within them, have had the Spirit of God placed within them, so that we respond in obedience from the heart, rejoicing because we want to know how to obey God. We have a desire to do so. We never had a desire to do so before we were in Christ. And now we do. We want to obey Him. So that's our relationship with the law. He's going to spell that out quite a bit. That's just a preview. What's the application? Well, the application for the unbeliever is that you're, you're still on the outside of this. You're still under the written code. And you may be working to obey it. Or you may be utterly ignoring it. I don't know. But that written code on the outside that declares to you God's character and His nature, declares to you His desires, is foreign to you because of your heart. Because your heart is in rebellion against Him. And so it will only produce dead fruit. It will only produce dead fruit. And so the good news for you is the new covenant. That what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his life, his death, and his resurrection can be applied to you. So that by faith in Christ, he actually creates in you a desire to obey God. He creates in you the ability by His Spirit to obey God, where you never had that before. He creates life in you so that you want to obey God from your heart. The penalty of your disobedience has been put away. The righteousness of of Christ's obedience has been applied to your account and practically in your own life. By faith in Christ, because you trust Him, He has created in you a new desire to walk in obedience to Him. That's the new covenant. And that's the application for you and me, Christian. Is to trust Christ. To love Him. This is why we preach the gospel so much. It's not just because we're in the middle chapters of Romans and Paul is talking about the gospel a lot. That's by design also. But it's because we we want to preach Christ, know Christ for what He has done, and love Him for who He is. We want to see all the more clearly that I could not have accomplished it, but He accomplished it. I love Him. 
He's what I want. He's my Savior. And so I look to Him and I look at what He's done and my love for Him grows all the more and my desire to obey Him from the heart grows all the more. And so now I'm just looking for ways to obey God because I want to obey Him. Okay, what do you want me to do? How, how, how can I obey you? Well, here, here's, here's the law. Okay, I want to do that. I want to tell the truth. I want to stop lying. I want to have pure relationships, not impure. I don't want to covet other people's things. I want to, I want to praise God for what He's given me. Because I want to from the heart. And so Christian, this is one of the reasons we preach the gospel so much is so Christ will be lifted higher and higher in your own mind and you will be drawn to Him to love Him all the more. It's not just so the unbeliever can become a Christian. That is certainly part of it. But it's because by meditating on, by dwelling on the gospel and how the gospel works, how God has taken a hopeless situation of the written code and created in us hope and joy and life in Christ, we rejoice in Him all the more. And we begin to see in our lives all the more fruit for God that He creates in us. We want to. He empowers us to do so. And so, Christian, listen to the gospel. Think about the gospel. Contemplate what God has done for us, that he's taken a hopeless situation and given us hope in Christ. And that will produce in you a greater love for him. And you'll be asking, okay, Lord, then how can I obey you? Because I want to now. And then you can look into his word and see and hear what he commands you to do. And you want to. That's my desire. I want to see us grow more and more that direction. That we would love God that way, where we're looking for opportunities to obey Him. How can I serve you now, Lord? Because of what you've done for me, I rejoice to be able to do so. That's my desire for you too. Let's pray. Father, these verses have challenged me have challenged us with our own desire to obey you. To obey you from the heart. So Father, we lift before our eyes even now in our thoughts, and may we do so this week. May we lift the gospel there. May we examine what you have done for us. May we look and think and ponder hard what you have done for us in Christ. And may we respond in worship and in praise and in adoration, rejoicing in you and what you've done for us. And may you, by your Spirit, work in us to cause us to desire to obey your statutes from the heart, that we would bear fruit for God that we would be restored to that place and an even better place of being your images, your image bearers, your vice regents on this earth to bear fruit as we were designed to do. Father, for those who don't know you who are on the outside, I pray that they would see the distinction between what it means to be outside of Christ and what it means to be in Christ. That they would see their own need and hopelessness 
and they would run to Christ, that they would trust in Him, that they would turn away from everything they've been trusting in or looking to, and they would turn to Christ instead, throw themselves upon Him and find life and joy and peace and hope and fruitfulness. Father, we entrust ourselves to You. We entrust our week to You. And in this world that is experiencing crazy things from the coronavirus to violence to other political and military things that are going on, I pray that the gospel would go forth clearly. I pray that You would change Your people and that You would bear fruit for God even in those circumstances. We ask for your mercy and we look for you to work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.